Welcome in to Words with Wallace. I am your host, Nick Wallace, coming at you. Little late night pod action coming at you. It's Tuesday, May 16th. Just got done watching game one of Nuggets versus Lakers. What a game that was. Don't worry. We will definitely talk about that later in the episode. But man, have a lot to cover since the last time we spoke. Uh, we had some NBA dramatic storylines that came out. Uh, we had what was that, four teams eliminated from the postseason since we last spoke. We are on to the conference finals in both the East and the West, which we will, of course, preview. We had some coaching drama. Uh, we had the draft lottery. What didn't we have in the past couple of days? It hasn't even been a full week since I came at you. But, man, I am super excited. Uh, I'm sure you're, you know I'm very excited about my Celtics finding a way to pull it out against the Sixers. We will, of course, talk about that. That's why I'm still in such a great mood a few days later. But let's get into it, man. I'm going to save the Celtics talk for the end when we preview the Eastern Conference Finals. Uh, have some important stuff to get to before that. But let's get into it, man. Let's get into it. Now, in a weekend that, again, featured the end of four different team seasons being eliminated from the postseason, a team that was already eliminated in the last round found a way to dominate the headlines, and that is because uh, the Memphis Grizzlies have their star player, John Morant, uh, making headlines for all the wrong reasons yet again. Of course, as you guys probably remember, uh, basically back in what was that, early April, maybe late March, Ja had to step away from the team after a video surfaced of him apparently being very drunk at a club uh, and taking out a gun and waving it around on Instagram Live. Again, he was the one recording himself. He's the one that pulled out the weapon. Uh, really frustrating situation that's like, dude, what are you thinking, right? Like, you, you can't be showing something like that. You can't be having a weapon in a place like that and showing it off for the world to see when you're in the middle of your season. Uh, subsequently, he took some time away from the team for to focus on his mental health. Uh, wanted to say he lasted, you know, a few days, maybe five, six days in some sort of rehabilit re rehabilitation center um, where it seemed he got the help that he needed. He came back to the team. He was, of course, awesome on the court, as he usually is. Uh, and the Grizzlies obviously had a disappointing end of, the, of their season, but at least they had John Morant back and on the court. Uh, well, many Grizzlies fans would probably be pretty frustrated to find out that Ja was seen yet again on Instagram Live with a weapon in his hand. And this time it's a lot worse. It's a lot worse because, first of all, everything I just mentioned, right? He's basically on NBA probation. Like, hey, if we can just make it through the offseason without doing some really, really dumb shit and being involved in a negative headline, we're going to be fine. Like, you still have the Nike deal. You still have all the other sponsors that I'm sure you know, Ja has. He's still beloved in the Memphis community. Um, you know, it's going to be pretty difficult for him to just lose that overnight for one event. Well, you know, over the weekend, I want to say it was on Sunday morning, a video surfaced where he appeared to be in a car with one of his friends. His friend was recording on Instagram Live. They were listening to some music, just hanging out in the car. It seemed to be midday. Uh, and the pretty disappointing thing is that, yet again, Ja seemed to be aware that they were at least being filmed, if not seem to be aware that the, the recording was live. Uh, they're listening to music. They're getting all hyped up. Ja whips out a gun again, waves it around the camera. And the funny thing to me was that his friend, I have no idea who that guy was, doesn't look like he's on the Grizzlies. Um, you know, he was filming, saw that John had the Ja had the gun in his hand, and immediately whipped the camera around, took it off film. Uh, but unfortunately for Ja and the guy involved, uh, you know, when you're live, a, a half-second clip of him holding a weapon clear as day, uh, that's going to make the rounds pretty quickly. And sure enough, I woke up on Sunday morning to that being uh, one of the headlining stories on ESPN. So it's really disappointing that Ja just cannot 
you know, put these bad habits away. Uh, again, it's funny. You can blame it on the people that he's surrounding with, which seems pretty naive to do if you're not close with John in his inner circle. But both of these events were completely self-inflicted. Uh, I don't have much more to say besides the guy clearly is, is really dumb and it's making some really questionable decisions right now. And it's a really bad look for somebody that appeared to use mental health as some sort of an excuse for his previous actions. I feel like you can only pull that card once unless you really are going through something serious, which, you know, obviously not sure if he is, but it's a really frustrating situation. A lot of Jagati jokes circling around on Twitter that are always hilarious. Uh, it's pretty easy uh, to be a jaw hater during a time like this and being a Grizzlies hater during a time like this. You know, I do want to see that guy stay on the court because he is so fun to watch, but it's pretty disappointing. Uh, and it is just funny that, you know, clearly there's some issues going on in Memphis. They tried to, to blame Dylan Brooks for how their season ends and their star can't, star player can't stay out of the headlines for all the wrong reasons. So thought it was worth, worth mentioning to see if there is any carryover uh, by the time the next season starts. Obviously, that's a ways away and there'll be plenty of other NBA storylines that make people forget about this incident. But as it stands, Jaws is suspended from team activities. So uh, interesting to see if there is any follow-up on that and if all these sponsors that Josh still has will stick with him through yet, yet again another Instagram Live gun scandal, which is pretty hilarious to say out loud. Uh, again, before we get on to the playoff stuff, I did want to mention some of the wild news in the NBA coaching circles that have happened. Just to give a quick recap of some notable names that have departed from their current teams since their seasons have come to an end. Because the list is up to uh, four coaches that are you know pretty well known, I would say. So let's kind of run through that real quick. Of course, I mentioned a couple podcasts ago that Nick Nurse, uh, 2019 NBA champion coach of the Toronto Raptors, was essentially fired at the conclusion of their season, which we already talked about a little bit, thought it was an interesting decision. Um, he's obviously known as one of the best coaches in the league, um, and maybe they, they just wanted to go a different direction, and Nick Nurse wanted to be a, a part of a, a team that was immediately ready to contend, where it seems like Toronto's in some sort of quasi-rebuild. So that was interesting. Um, obviously, we've covered the coach Mike Budenholzer of the Milwaukee Bucks at nauseum here on this podcast but of course he it was announced that he was fired uh shortly after their season against the heat came to an end um, obviously i agree with that decision but it's still really difficult for a team to part ways with a a coach that won a championship just a couple years ago in 2021 but we had a wave of two new firings over the weekend that i was pretty surprised with because again both these you know, coaches were coaching the last time I was on this podcast. The first of which that got announced was, of course, Monty Williams, coach of the Phoenix Suns. And this one was pretty weird. And let's let's kind of get into it, right? It kind of makes sense because you think, again, the Suns have a new owner, Matt Ishbia. Um, obviously, he's some real estate mogul that purchased the team basically halfway through the season. And uh, it's largely responsible for the Kevin Durant trade because when you are the one paying all the bills for the team and you have an opportunity to get Kevin Durant, it's pretty easy for him to be the one saying, hey, to the GM, let's get this job done. Let's get this deal done. Let's get Kevin Durant in our team. So that was a pretty standard operating procedure for a new owner to want to make a big trade. It's also standard operating procedure for a new owner to fire their coach and bring in one of their own guys. But I was pretty surprised to see a guy that as beloved as Monty Williams go. Now, just to remind you guys, uh, Monty Williams was the coach of the year literally a year ago in 2022. He was the coach of the year the previous year in 2021, and that was and during that 21 season, he also made the Western. He also made the NBA Finals, uh, obviously coming up short and losing to the Milwaukee Bucks. This one was surprising to me. Now, obviously, Phoenix ended up losing over the weekend, that we're, and we're going to talk about that in a little bit. But I don't think it was a surprise that they lost. They lost to a better Denver team. They lost to a higher-seeded Denver team. They lost to a deeper and healthier Denver team. 
And I thought that they, you know, obviously in game six, they ended up losing by 40, which we'll talk about. And that's embarrassing. But when you don't have DeAndre Ayton in that game, when you already lost Chris Paul earlier in the seasons, I don't know exactly what the expectations were. So it'll be interesting to see that. It's just kind of sad because by all accounts, Monty Williams is one of the most beloved, you know, people in the NBA. I heard a lot of really heartwarming stories about some of the relationships that he's formed with people he's played and coached with. So It'll be interesting to see who they bring in, right? Because now there's all these coaches on the market. Is this just going to turn into some big coaching carousel where one team's trash is another team's treasure and, and these guys all just kind of rotate teams? Because I find it hard to believe that Nick Nurse, Coach Mike Budenholzer, Monty Williams are going to be all unemployed at the start of next season. But we'll see. I was pretty frustrated to see Monty Williams fired. But again, that just kind of comes with the territory when you have a new owner and an embarrassing last game of the season. And then finally, a firing uh, that we need to talk about here is Coach Doc Rivers, coach of the Philadelphia 76ers, was let go. Uh, that was announced earlier today, actually on the 16th when they lost on Sunday, uh, blowing a 3-2 lead against my Boston Celtics, of course. Um, just some quick stats for you to kind of explain why Doc Rivers is often made fun of and, uh, you know, his playoff record is, is you know, not the best, you could say. Um, Doc Rivers' teams have now blown three 3-1 series leads, four 3-2 series leads, and one 2-0 series lead, all in the playoffs, of course. Uh, and they've lost Game 7 at home four different times, uh, and actually five times if you count the bubble season where there wasn't an actual home court advantage. So, yeah, that's obviously a pretty disappointing resume for Doc Rivers. And I actually say that all to say, I don't really think that this series against the Celtics was his fault. Now, again... You know, there's a lot of different variables when you have a playoff series uh, like this. But at the end of the day, just like I said with Monty Williams, they lost to a better team. They lost to a higher-seeded team. They lost to a more talented team. And it's going to be pretty difficult to win, you know, when Harden and Embiid in the last couple games of the series were really disappointed. I felt like he tried to do a lot of different things and made a lot of adjustments to avoid that happening. But there's only so much you can do when you, again, are the least talented team. Uh, I think their opportunity to win was obviously game six, which we're going to talk about uh, a lot more later in the podcast. But I don't necessarily love the decision for Philadelphia because I don't know what a new coach gets them. I think it's going to be really difficult for them to get a better postseason run than what they got from Embiid, given his health struggles and Harden at this point in his career. I don't think you can ask much more from those guys, even though they were up and down throughout the series. I just think they need an overhaul of, of their core of their team and, and need to find a different way to build around Joel Embiid if they want to eventually win, get over the hump. But I do feel like it, it, it makes sense a little bit, given that you know Doc's time in, in Philly has been pretty tumultuous here. Uh, we'll see where he lands and, and what direction they decide to go with the coaching staff. But it uh, seems like a pretty standard situation of a team that, again, I identified in Philadelphia as you know, the second most pressure on them entering the postseason. Uh, it makes sense that they're going to have to you know, at least overreact in some category. And Doc was, of course, the scapegoat of that. So notable coaching changes across the board. Four big names, four uh, Coach of the Year winners, uh, you know, basically three of those being NBA champions. Pretty shocking to see, but uh, that's how the NBA rolls, right? The most dramatic uh, professional sports league for a reason. Moving on, again, coming at you, it's Tuesday, May 16th. We had some really a really big event today that wasn't pertaining to any of the teams that were playing uh, this evening and are still in the playoff race because we had the NBA draft lottery. Now, frankly, I don't watch a lot of college ball. I'm not familiar with a lot of the prospects uh, that are coming up. I'll, I'll maybe dive into that a little bit more once the current NBA season's at an end. But 
the reason why everybody is so excited about the draft lottery and why this got so much attention today uh, is because there is a very special prospect by the name of Victor Wembenyama, who you guys probably remember from my tier list, uh, the win list for Wemby category, uh, the very bottom of my tier list, the teams that were essentially tanking during this past regular season. Uh, one of those teams is, was going to get rewarded today because, he, again, he's a seven foot five prospect from France. Um, you know, there have been many prospects that have been compared to LeBron, but he is the most recent addition to the best prospect since LeBron club. Uh, deservedly so. If you watch his highlights, it, it literally doesn't look real. The movement, uh, the way that guy can shoot the ball, the way he can attack the basket despite his size is actually ridiculous. Um, so he's a pretty obvious lock for the first overall pick, no matter what team ends up there. Uh, we had four teams that were far and away had the best odds of getting them. Uh, you know, the Spurs, the Hornets, the Rockets, the Pistons were all teams that were, you know, basically had less than 20 wins during the regular season. So they were certainly hoping to get lucky. So I'm just going to read through how the order ended and what team ended up with Wembenyama. And I'll go from 14 all the way to one. 14, we had the Pelicans. 13, we had the Raptors. 12, we had the Thunder. 11, we had the Magic, who acquired that pick via their trade with the Chicago Bulls. I believe that was the Vucevic trade. At 10, we have the Dallas Mavericks. 9, the Utah Jazz. 8, the Wizards. 7, the Pacers. 6, the Magic. 5, the Pistons. Rockets at 4, Trailblazers at 3, Hornets at 2, and of course the San Antonio Spurs were the lucky ones that came away with the number one overall pick and in all likelihood are going to draft Victor Wembenyama. Um, just wanted to give my quick thoughts on the lottery because again, I'm really only locked into the top one prospect and then I have some knowledge of the other two guys, Brandon Miller and Scoot Henderson, that are expected to wrap up the two and three spots in some order. Um, my big thought is that, man, Obviously, San Antonio's the luckiest, right? They were a team that I identified that needed Wembenyama the most. I said that all the way back in the tier rankings. I'm like, there's really only one way that San Antonio is able to turn this around in a hurry, and they need to get Wembenyama, right? Like, at least those other teams in the in the winless for Wemby tier, like the Rockets, the Pistons, the Hornets, they have some other talented players. They have some other guys that they can at least use to sell tickets and put somebody on a poster. San Antonio has nobody. Like, they really have nobody. So they needed this. Uh, and they got lucky, right? They they were obviously had at best a 25% chance to land Wembenyama, and they got him. And I'm, you know, pretty happy with it as a casual fan who just wants to see this Wembenyama guy be great. And we're going to get a good sense of how good he is right away because there is going to be nobody else on the Spurs roster that is going to attract any sort of defensive attention. So every team that game plans for, for the Spurs this upcoming season uh, is going to have to game plan around Wembenyama. He's going to be seeing a lot of defensive attention. He's not joining a competitive team. So he's obviously going to have all the leash that he needs to be uh, himself and be the player that he can be right away. He's not getting drafted into any sort of championship or bust situation by any means. So uh, I think it'll be fun. Obviously, San Antonio has a, a great championship pedigree. They still have coach Greg Popovich there, uh, who has like, what, five titles, maybe even more than that. Um, pretty insane stuff there. So you know, they're obviously a good organization. They had some sketchy stuff with how they handled the Kawhi situation and, and that tenure kind of ending badly. But I think people still hold the Spurs in high regard. So I think it's good for Wembenyama. I think it's good for San Antonio, obviously. They're the big winners. Uh, moving on to my other thoughts again. Charlotte at two. 
the Portland at three, I think, is pretty notable because, again, uh, Portland wasn't in the bottom, bottom tier. They actually had an outside chance of making the playoffs in the West or making the play-in tournament, rather. They had the fifth worst record in the NBA, but they were much better than any of the teams in that bottom four. Um, this is kind of a fork in the road moment for them, right? Um, you know, Charlotte at, at two, you know, it's presumed pretty early they're going to take Brandon Miller, a wing out of Alabama, uh, the only really high-rated prospect in this draft that is coming from the NCAA, from coming from college basketball, which is pretty interesting. Assuming they take a wing with that pick at, at number two, the next most obvious option is Scoot Henderson, a point guard out of the G League. Um, who's supposed to be really special. That's just kind of a tough fit for Portland as, as a team that's still quasi-competitive because they do have Damian Lillard. Um, obviously, they have more depth at the guard position with Anthony Simons and, of course, Shaden Sharp, who they drafted in last year's draft. So I think it's kind of a fork in the road moment, right? Like, you know, if you want to continue to build around Dame and Dame, you know, for the fifth year in a row is still happy despite uh, some whispers that they, you know, might decide to move in a different direction. If he's still, you know, committed to the grind, if you will, I feel like you kind of have to move on from that pick and, and obviously try to get some value for it and see if you can actually acquire somebody else around Dame that fits the team a little bit better. I think they acquired Jeremy Grant before last offseason, which was a solid pickup for them. But the rest of that roster is still a ways away from competing. Um, so it'll be interesting to see if they decide to move that pick or maybe they're like, hey, we got lucky. We slotted in a couple picks higher than we should have based on our record. Maybe we just take Scoot and this is our opportunity to rebuild and uh, move on from Dame and move on from some of our other veterans and just give Scoot or whoever we take in that pick an opportunity to build the team around them and actually rebuild this thing instead of, you know, trying to beat remain somewhat competitive and just end up tanking at the end of the season. So Portland, definitely some sneaky winners there. And I think the big loser of it is got to be the Pistons, right? They fell down to five despite having, you know, up there in, in the top four odds. So they basically got bumped out by Portland. Uh, that's going to be tough for them. I don't really know that the prospects that they're looking at at the at the five spot. I really only know those top three guys in the draft at this time. So uh, that is tough for D Detroit. I was talking to my guy Jordan, uh, you know, really disturbed Pistons fan before doing this podcast. So uh, he's not happy with it. He's not happy with the, the get-rich-quick scheme uh, that they could have had if they were able to draft Wembenyama. So uh, sucks for the Pistons. And then, of course, the last team I wanted to talk about is the Dallas Mavericks. Uh, hopefully the super embarrassing end of the regular season uh, was worth it. Uh, it appears to be worth it from the standpoint of the front office because they landed the 10th pick in the draft. Again, uh, if this pick was outside the top 10, it actually would have been moved over to the Knicks as part of the Kristaps Porzingis deal. So they needed to slot into the top 10 to not forego this pick, and they did. Let's see who they get with it. <laughs> you know, they haven't drafted particularly, they really haven't drafted anyone of value uh, ever since the, you know, Luca and Jalen Brunson draft. That was actually the same year in 2018. You know, they picked up Josh Green along the way and maybe Jalen Hardy can evolve into something or Jaden Hardy, rather. I always screw up that guy's name. I'm sorry. Uh, but hopefully that was worth it, man. We'll see. I mean, as of right now, Luca hasn't come out and said he's unhappy. Where We obviously don't have any update on if Kyrie is going to return and, and sign back with the team. But at least they have the 10th pick to add some other usable player to their roster uh, because they only have a handful of those guys right about now. And the last thing we need to talk about before we move on to our conference finals preview is just like a couple pods ago, we need to say goodbye to the losers of round two. And we are going to start off with none other than the New York Knicks. I will remember you. 
So what do we think about this next season, right? I think overall, it's still a very positive season if you're a Knicks fan. If if you were to talk to Knicks fans before the season started and said, hey, you're going to lose in six games in the Eastern Conference Finals, I'm sure that they'd be, you know, relatively happy, right? You win a playoff series that's big for the Garden, that's big for the fans. Uh, you lose in six games, a competitive series in round two. Now, the other side of that coin is if you told them they were going to lose to an eight seed, they probably wouldn't have been as thrilled, but... As we know, Miami is no ordinary eight seed. We're certainly going to talk about them later. But let's start off with the positives, right? You know, the Heat win this this series in six games, like I mentioned. And, and what we learned throughout that, uh, first and foremost, is that Jalen Brunson is the real deal. Um, this guy put up 31-6-6 six, six on 50% shooting from the field, 34% shooting from three throughout this series. And doing that while playing 42 minutes a game. That's really impressive. Obviously, it's not super surprising that he played that much, given his coach is Tom Thibodeau, someone who is notorious for uh, playing his core guys, for playing his starters more than nearly any other coach in the league, especially when you get to desperation mode and you're playing in the playoffs. You really didn't have any other choice. But playing Jalen Brunson that many minutes, I think in one of the games, he actually pl he didn't come out. He played a full 48 minutes, which is ridiculous. And that's really impressive for a small guard. I mean, what is he, like, barely six feet tall? I know he's listed as a little taller than that, but if you watch the game, it looks like he's, like, 5'11 out there. Uh, so really impressive stuff for him, man. Like, again, there might have been some Knicks fans that were disappointed they weren't able to pull off the Donovan Mitchell trade, which we can talk about in a little bit. But that contract that they signed Jalen Brunson to is now a flat-out steal. You really cannot even argue that. He was the best player through two rounds, through two different playoff series, he was fantastic. He's a guy you can build around. Uh, when I start doing my offseason segments and ranking the top point guards in the league, it's going to be really difficult to keep Jalen Brunson off that list. He's definitely in the top 10. Maybe he's even top 5. I don't know. I'd have to look at the list. But he exceeded even my highest expectations. And this is somebody in myself who absolutely loved Jalen Brunson. He was my favorite player to watch in the Mavericks last year. Really impressed with the season that you got from him. Uh, another positive is I think overall I liked what I saw from R.J. Barrett throughout this season against or throughout this series against the Heat. Rather, um, he started the playoffs a little bit slow against Cleveland, but since that he kind of responded in a big way. You know, putting up twenty-one five and four uh, throughout this series against the Heat that's solid. Now, kind of circling back on that Donovan Mitchell trade I just talked about, it was rumored that the reason the Knicks didn't want to make that move is because they didn't want to put R.J. Barrett as you know the topper in that trade. I don't know if, you know, I like R.J. Barrett. I'm a Duke guy. That's no secret. Um, but I think you have to put him in a trade for Donovan Mitchell. And, and that sounds a bit ridiculous given how bad Mitchell looked just this last series against the Knicks. Uh, and I think you could have a, a really fun backcourt and having Mitchell and Jalen Brunson. I'd probably still take that over R.J. Obviously, you'd have to put in other pieces with R.J. to get Mitchell. I, I like RJ. I just I think he is more in that in that category of like a third star. Like if he's your second guy, I think that's going to be tough. I don't think he's a star yet. He kind of like you know I, I could see him in like an Andrew Wiggins type role for the Warriors where he could really thrive. I just haven't seen him make that leap yet. Obviously, he's still young and has time to do that. Uh, but I do like him as a prospect, and he's definitely the second most valuable player on that Knicks team in my opinion. And now we got to talk about the negative, right? The Julius Randle roller coaster continued during this series, right? Like, if you think back to two years ago, he had an incredible season with the Knicks where he was on an All-NBA team. Um, he was really, really impressive. I want to say he won Most Improved. If not, he was a finalist for that award. He was awesome in his first year with the Knicks. 
Then last year, he took a major decline. He got, after getting a, a massive bag before the start of last season, he was really bad across the board. His numbers, you know, basically plummeted from where they were at the year before, and Knicks fans were really low on him. This year, he rebounded again. You know, overall, on the, on the regular season, people were pretty pleased with Randall. He was able to sneak in and make another All-NBA team. He made the third team that was announced last week. But in this series against the Heat, you know, they did a really great job of exposing all of his biggest weaknesses. He looked visibly frustrated all the time. His body language is, you know, continuously horrific if you really watch the games. You know, statistically, he ended up putting up 18 and 10, but it was on really poor shooting, uh, really bad turnovers as well. He averaged four turnovers a game and just really shitty effort defensively and really bad shot selection throughout that series. I just was really disappointed in what I saw from Julius Randle and, and to the opposite of Jalen Brunson does not look like a guy you ultimately want to build around. Like, I just don't know what that role is because for him to, to be the best version of himself, he has to take a lot of shots. I just don't know if he's ever going to be that efficient of a scorer. Uh, and if he's your second best player on paper, your team is definitely at its ceiling by being in the second round. Uh, another negative is that the heat, game plan they turned Mitchell Robinson into a total stiff uh, I sound like an absolute idiot for picking the Knicks to win in seven games uh, and a large reason for that is because I just didn't think they had the size to compete with Mitchell Robinson on the offensive glass just based on how small the heat are and, and how the heat looked in that one uh, play in game versus Atlanta obviously that was an overreaction because great coaching and great game planning uh, can fix a lot of different things and they were basically able to drag Robinson away from the basket from time to time and really just do a great job of uh, in a total team effort, keep him off the offensive glass, and he just looked like a, you know, a stiff. He just looked like a big body out there. Uh, but again, I think overall, it was a solid season, you know, for the Knicks. It'll be interesting to see how they build around Brunson in the offseason. It'll be interesting to see if they do make any large roster changes. Obviously, Julius Randle's under a massive contract, so it'll, he's not the easiest player to move. I don't think you necessarily have to move him. I just think that long-term, Brunson is the guy you should be focused on building ground, and I think that much is clear to the Knicks front office. Next, we have to say goodbye to the Phoenix Suns. I will remember you. Now, obviously, I hinted on this earlier uh, with the departure of Monty Williams with his firing. Uh, but man, this one was ugly. It was ugly in Game 6. If you guys watched it, you really didn't have to. Uh, I actually went across the street to Raising Cane's during the first, I don't know, five minutes of the game. Uh, came back, and the Suns were down 20, and it only got worse <laughs> throughout the game. They were down 20 basically like eight or nine minutes into this thing, and it just stayed like that. For the second consecutive year in a row, the Suns have been 40 pieced at home to end their season. So that makes for some really dank memes, some really funny jokes on Twitter. Uh, definitely worth mentioning. That being said, I do think it is apples and oranges when you compare it to last season because last year's loss to the Mavericks was far more horrific than this year was. Last year, they were the favorites to win the series. They were a much better team in the regular season. They were playing against a, a Dallas team that had really won nothing and hasn't won nothing since then for that reason. Uh, whereas this year, you were playing against a better team at Denver. You were playing uh, against the you know a two-time MVP winner, uh, and I just think that you were also a way more banged-up team. There was no Aiton. It was announced that he had a rib injury that had been bothering him during the series, and that was going to hold him out of Game 6, which was pretty interesting. A lot of 
conspiracy out there that maybe he wasn't super hurt and you know, some frustration played into that. I'm not going to touch upon that. Uh, but obviously not having DeAndre Aiden when you're playing against an MVP that's playing the center position and not having Chris Paul for the you know last few games of that season, that's going to wear on a team. So I wasn't shocked about it. I thought Denver was going to take care of business before the series. And as it played out, it was pretty obvious that the only reason the Suns were even able to steal a game or two was because of the heroics of Devin Booker and Kevin Durant. Uh, those couple games where they basically combined for like over 80 points, two games in a row. That was the shit that they needed to beat Denver, so it's not super surprising. Um, and it's just a bad combination, right? When you're the combination of a thin team and also a bad injury bet, that's not a good combo. Like, we knew the Suns didn't really have any depth to begin with. We also knew that they had Chris Paul and Kevin Durant, two guys who are historically injury-plagued. CP3's injury history came to fruition. Obviously, Durant was able to stay consistent throughout the series. And Booker finally went cold in Game 6, which is part of the reason they lost by so much. It's just frustrating to see Monty uh, get laid off, let again, uh, just because you lost to a better team. Uh, but again, when you have a new owner in the building, that's just how billionaires roll. They're going to move on from the coach. So we'll see what moves they have to make if they try to move on from Chris Paul, if Aiton really is unhappy there and they try to move on from him. The only certainty that they have is they will go into next season with two of the top 15 players in the world with Kevin Durant and Devin Booker. You could probably even make the argument for top 10. Um, it's crazy how much Booker moved up in my book personally. I was not a Booker guy before this playoff run, and he really really impressed me and if he comes into next season with that same ferocity and Kevin Durant is almost the one B there that's going to be really scary no matter what but they do need to find a lot of depth pieces to put around those two guys in order to stay competitive it'll be interesting to see if Chris Paul and DeAndre Ayton are still on the team next year uh, moving on this one this one hurt me this one hurt me a little bit we have to say goodbye to the Golden State Warriors Being a Steph guy and obviously also being a Celtics guy, so I have that anti-Laker just kind of built in my blood. Um, this one stung. I was completely wrong in this series. I would have said Warriors in five. Ended up being Lakers in six. So, uh, yeah, wasn't my best prediction. So, yeah, overall I'm shocked. But let's kind of talk about how exactly this happened, right? I think if you wanted to do the spark notes of it, if you compare the Warriors, uh, two players two through ten, so basically... Uh, excluding Steph and looking at the rest of their roster and compare them to the Lakers 2 through 10. So let's just say you remove Anthony Davis from that and just compare the two teams, minus Steph, minus AD. Uh, it's night and day that the Lakers just were better at every single spot the rest of the way. Their other guys stepped up in a massive way while Golden State's came short. Uh, if you take out game one for Clay, he actually averaged uh, 10.5 points per game the last four games of the series. So not that small of a sample size. He obviously played really well in game one where they ended up losing. Uh, but yeah, averaged you know less than 11 points a game the rest of the way. Jordan Poole, we talked about this a little bit before, but he averaged 8.3 points per game uh, during that series. So that's worth noting. Uh, Jonathan Kaminga still really couldn't get consistent minutes during the series. He only played in four of the six games, only averaging six minutes a game. And this was really night and day compared to last year's, you know, title run, right? It's funny how, after you know, last year I felt very confident in saying that the Warriors were the best team, and I still feel like that. Uh, but we sit here a year later, and you look at the roster, and, you know, the core of the team is the same, right? Uh but it's totally different. It doesn't even look like a team that was close to contending for a championship, given that they lost in six games to round two to a seven seed. But that's that's how the NBA works, right? They really weren't able to make up 
and it sounds ridiculous. They couldn't make up the production that they got last year from guys like Otto Porter. Uh, Belitza was really good for them as well. And of course, last year's Jordan Poole was a completely different player than what we saw this year. Um, it's really tough uh, for them to hang size-wise against the Lakers. It ended up being a really bad matchup for them. Um, you know, their small ball lineup and the ability to run Looney at the five and Draymond at the five in, in spurts uh, has worked well for the, the Warriors during their, you know, this entire dynasty, really. Uh, but it's going to be really hard for them to hang with two dominant inside forces in Anthony Davis and LeBron. Um, and it's kind of funny because if you think about it, if they had just nailed the Wiseman pick and if he had panned out, he would have been the perfect player for that series just to have another big body. But they just, they didn't have it. Like, it was either Looney, and they were going to sag 50 feet off him, or it was Draymond, who, again, they're also going to sag 50 feet off him. Uh, obviously, it's a little bit tougher to do that with Draymond, given how, you know, well he sees the floor. But either way, it, it they really felt, you know, their 2 through 10 did not deliver for the Golden State Warriors. Now, the hot thing to talk about ever since the game on Saturday night, or Friday night, rather, is the end of the dynasty, right? Maybe it's people wanting to see the end of the dynasty because they're tired of the success that the Warriors have had over the last 10 years. Um, but I personally do not think that this run is over, and I think that they would be pretty dumb to blow it up. I've said it a million times, and the last time I'll say it for a while, presumably, Steph is aging like a fine wine. I think he was just as good this year as he was any other year of his entire career. I think, again, you're doing a disservice for Steph if you're not actively trying to compete and build around him. Obviously, Lakeup and, and the Warriors front office decided to uh, try to have the both the best of both worlds. They were, quote-unquote, light years ahead trying to rebuild while they were still contending for championships, and that has obviously not come to fruition. But I do not think that this is the year where they need to blow it up. As much shit as Draymond gets, and he, he punched Jordan Poole before the season, and he says some dumb shit, and he's on a podcast, and he grinds everybody's gears, he's really important to that Warriors team, and it's two, a two-way street, right? He's not going to be nearly as valuable for any other team as he is for the Golden State Warriors. And I think the Warriors really need to have him along Steph. Now, if there's anybody that you're going to get rid of out of your the, their big three, it, it makes sense for it to be Clay, uh, just because I think what you can you can get a Clay replacement a lot easier than you can replace Draymond, and obviously Steph isn't going anywhere. However, with Clay's contract, it doesn't really make financial sense for the Warriors to be able to get rid of him. I want to say he has a player option that in all likelihood he's going to pick up. So yeah, I think that they should keep their big three together. Call me crazy, the team that you know, the core that's won you four championships. I would still continue to play that out. Obviously, you might have to overpay Draymond a little bit, but they've overpaid for all their players during this title run, and that's part of the reason why they've been able to have the success that they've had. You know, I think there are some moves that need to be made. They really need to find a way to rejuvenate their uh, their core, rejuvenate their role players. Um, obviously, it's really tough that they already cashed in on one of their young lottery picks in James Wiseman, and the only person they got back for that was Gary Payton II, who was solid for them throughout the series, but he was a player that you literally already had the year before, so you just had to you know trade Wiseman just to get him back. But I think you know the, the pieces that you could move are maybe Jordan Poole. You obviously just signed him with that massive contract that looks horrible now, and it's going to be really interesting to see what his trade value is when he just melted down on the biggest stage with the whole world watching. It'll also be interesting to see what the value is for a guy like Jonathan Kaminga, who has a ton of value because, again, he or presumably had a ton of value because I want to say he was the fourth or fifth pick in the draft. Obviously has had some flashes, but 
What sucks about Kaminga is that when you get drafted to a competitive team that has championship aspirations, you don't have time to grow and develop and figure out who you are in this league where, you know, he has to immediately step into a really complicated offensive system that doesn't really complement his game. He can't make mistakes or he'll have his ass benched. It's a really tough spot for him to succeed. So I don't really know how you gauge value like that. Uh, but I think that those are two valuable pieces that, you know, are somewhat valuable pieces that the, the Warriors have that they can move. I just don't know what you get from that. But I think they'd be really dumb to totally blow it up and move on from one of their, you know, big three guys. And I don't think that they should. And honestly, I don't think that they will either. I think ownership will do right by them. And move it on to the next season. And I think it'll surprise a lot of people when uh, they're extremely competitive next year. And I'd be pretty shocked if they're not a top four seed in the West, you know, assuming good health heading into next season. And finally, the last team that we need to say goodbye to, I think you guys know who it is, the Philadelphia 76ers. I will remember you. Good riddance to the Sixers. I mean, not really. I I'm obviously happy to see them lose as a Celtics fan. Uh, I think they had a solid season, and uh, of course, they have already started their meltdown by firing Coach Doc Rivers, like we talked about before. You know, night and day compared to where we were last podcast, right? RJ and I both said that, you know, we were still picking Boston despite how Rocky was looking, despite them being down 3-2. We were, of course, rewarded for that by the Celtics winning Game 6 and Game 7. Um, so let's kind of talk about those games, right? I think if you're a Sixers fan, the game that's obviously going to haunt you is Game 6. Just to set the scene a little bit, this was, of course, at home in Philadelphia. It was a really ugly game where neither team was making any shots. But at least for the Sixers, you were getting, you know, a solid game from Joel Embiid, a, a somewhat solid game from James Harden. And on the other side of things, well, for the Celtics, Tatum was having a literal nightmare game. Uh, we'll talk more about that in a second, but the dude could not buy a basket until the closing minutes of the fourth quarter. And that was the game that you had to win. When the other team is just, you know, completely shell-shocked, their, their star player literally looks like a fifth grader out there, and it's a tie game with three or four minutes left in the fourth quarter, that's when you have to step up. That's when you have the home crowd and you use it to your advantage. You find a way to get Embiid the Rock, and you find a way to win the game, and they just were not able to do that. Um, again, I kind of mentioned this when we talked about Doc getting fired, but I just... I still respect Embiid. Like, again, I was a Celtics fan. And overall, I feel, you know, his numbers weren't great during the Celtics series, but I was impressed. I was really impressed with what I saw from him on the defensive end. We really, really felt his presence protecting the rim way more than I was expecting. Like, I, I feel like every single game in this series, he had three to four blocks at least. Um, and he just was snatching any any soft take to the basket he was deflecting. He was making his presence felt. Um, and I definitely... Was surprised to see that as somebody who who felt like I watched a decent amount of Embiid during the regular season, but that effort just wasn't there defensively. And even from Harden, right? Like, Harden is a career playoff choker. That's He's often been criticized. He's had meltdown after meltdown in the postseason. And even he found a way to have, you know, two outstanding games in games one. And what was the other one? Game four. And then I think game five, he was really solid as well and, and hitting the big shot. Um, in the corner when Jalen doubled Embiid and left Harden open for three. Um, you know, he had a pretty solid series too. Now, obviously you can ask for more from Harden, but, you know, given he's what, you know, 32 going on 33 years old and, um, you know, it's a pretty long injury history and clearly physically isn't the same guy that we saw in Houston. I just think a core of those two guys is, is going to be difficult to expect postseason success and expect for them to stay healthy. 
I think the the frustrating thing is you're a Sixers fan is I I don't see at least with Golden State you have Steph Curry you have somebody that's won championships you have somebody that's proven to build around you have a player of that talent in Joel Embiid but you just don't have that experience you don't have that core and and at least the Warriors had those extra players right the pool the Kaminga some young guys that you can move on from I think with the Sixers like you have a real guy in Maxi and he's the second most valuable player on the team, despite not being on the posters with Embiid, that guy, that guy's Harden, right? Uh, but I think Maxi, you can hope that he develops into something a little bit better and really give him the keys more next year. Um, but I think it's tough, right? Because having him and Harden out there, that's two guys that aren't great defensively. That's two guys that like having the ball in their hands in addition to Joel Embiid. So I just don't know what their moves are, right? Like, do you package Tobias Harris and some of your remaining draft capital? I'm not even sure what they have to try to get more of a traditional third star. Do you... You know, I, I'm not even sure if Harden's going to want to return to this team. Um, and maybe if he leaves, that gives them more flexibility. Uh, I think they'll have a chance. They're never going to be below, like, a top four seed in the Eastern Conference with Embiid playing as well as he does in the regular season. But it's tough. I mean, I put them second on my pressure rankings for a reason. I think they really had to make the conference finals. They've literally never been before, ever. you know, since the pre-process era. You know, Embiid's never played in the conference finals. So... Uh, this was the year where they had to do it. I didn't necessarily think that they would. And yet again, they they came up short and it was pretty frustrating. Game six was a really bad loss for them. They had a chance to close out a, a better team at home and they missed their opportunity. So uh, goodbye to the 76ers. I'm sure we're going to hear a lot more noise out of them throughout the offseason that we'll talk about more. Uh, but that's going to put a bow on it until the rest of this playoff run on this podcast anyway. Now let's move on to the fun stuff, right? We have to talk about the conference finals, the Boston Celtics versus the Miami Heat in the East. Uh, but before we get into that, we have to talk about what the hell happened to the Celtics in Game 6 and Game 7, how they were able to overcome a 3-2 series deficit in Round 2 for the second year in a row, for what it's worth. And it really comes down to Jason Tatum, right? I'm sure you guys have heard by now, but man, did he have... A truly a Disney movie turnaround. Like, if you watched, let's go back to game six and, and through my eyes as a Celtics fan. Heading into the fourth quarter and, and during the start of the fourth quarter, I thought we were done. It was that depressing. Being on the road, Tatum was playing literally the worst game I've ever seen him play, especially considering the stakes. He was one of 14 at one point. He had four turnovers, and man, these turnovers were terrible. Like, there's levels to it, right? There's like, you know, I don't know, maybe the defender made a good play, and then the ball got poked away from behind. He was just throwing terrible passes. He was nonchalant. When he was attacking people off the dribble, you saw it too. Like, he got George Niang on him at, at a few different points throughout the game on the perimeter. That guy literally looks, he looks fat. He's a fatty out there. He's, a, he's literally an NBA fatty trying to guard one of the best players in the world. And Tatum's like falling over. It looked like he was playing basketball. Like, you know how if, if you're in a dream, right, you're dreaming and you're getting chased in your, in your dream by some, someone or something and you're trying to run away, but you can't because it's in a dream and you're like, damn, I'm a pretty fast guy. Like, why am I running so slow? That's how Tatum was playing. It looked like he was like dream running out there. He was like falling over. It's like, why don't you try crossing over? He was just trying to like muscle through guys. It was absolutely ridiculous. And for him to have the turnaround that he did with basically three or four minutes left in the fourth quarter, again, he was one of 14 at this point, goes on to close out and have like, what, 12 of the Celtics' last 15 points or something close to that. He hit a bunch of threes. He totally took over the game and closed them out. For him to find that within himself on the road, right? That's, that's the big thing. I, this is where I think... 
home court, it, sometimes it's overstated, but I felt like it really mattered in a game like this. Because at least, like, you know, when you're having a bad game in front of your home crowd, like, they're looking for anything to, to build on that momentum, right? Like a nice pass, a steal, a big rebound, a block, maybe a made shot, or maybe some free throws if you're lucky. Like, they're going to let you know when you finally do something well because they're willing you to win. Like, the Sixers game, it was the opposite, right? Like, they're just... They are they're, They think that they just bought tickets to Jason Tatum's funeral through three and a half quarters. Like, it was really that bad. And I, as a Celtics fan, thought we were done. I thought it was over. Like, it was... We were just playing so bad with no end in sight. And again, a coach that I've talked about, i got to give him some credit, and I will in a second. But a coach that has not been able to help us execute in a late-game setting. Um, and it was pretty frustrating for me as a Celtics fan, too, because... You know, Jalen was fine, but we weren't aggressive enough in getting him the ball and making him be like, hey, Tatum doesn't have it tonight. Let's give Jalen the keys and let him cook. Like, he really wasn't being aggressive enough for my liking. So the fact that Tatum was able to take over late in game six, come on strong, give a dope-ass post-game interview where he basically called himself one of the best players in the world, which I respected, and he backed that shit up in game seven. That was amazing. Jason Tatum finished Game 7 with 51 points, an all-time NBA record for most points in a Game 7, breaking Steph's record from literally last round against the Sacramento Kings in Game 7. It was the best game I've ever seen Jason Tatum play. It had to have been the best game Jason Jason Tatum has played on any single level. He was so aggressive from the gate. He, it was his world. He, he kept getting Embiid into switches and cooking him on the perimeter, getting to the basket, going hard, shooting the ball well. He didn't even turn the ball over. He had the ball in his hands virtually the entire game and didn't have any turnovers in Game 7. It was unbelievable. And and for me, you know, I felt pretty good as a Celtics fan once they were able to come back and win Game 6 that they were going to be able to close out the Sixers in Game 7 on their home court. But all I kept saying was like, Tatum needs to play like that. Tatum needs to play like how we did the last four minutes. We cannot, I, I cannot sit through another game where he starts slow and he had started slow in basically what, five out of the seven games in that series. He was brutal to start the game. I just, I couldn't do it. I'm like, please back it up to start the game. And he did. He came out, he was able to carry that momentum onwards. And I'm again, just sitting here praying that he finds a way to carry that momentum into uh, games one and two against Miami. We'll be at home at the garden. That's the luxury of having home court the rest of the way. And we'll see if he's able to turn it up. But he was unbelievable. Uh, some more people to give credit to on the Celtics side of things. Of course, Al Horford feel like he was kind of the unsung hero of the last couple games of the series. Um, obviously he made a couple shots here and there, which was great. He was going through a really rough shooting stretch in what was that games four and five, um, where he could not make any jump shots. He made a couple, uh, big ones throughout the last couple games of the series, but more importantly, his defense on Joel Embiid was amazing. Embiid had some really tough games to close out this series. And it was mainly because we have a 34 year old guy that in an isolation situation against the MVP has his number. Uh, we should remind any Sixers fans listening to this. They literally signed Al Horford to a massive contract just a couple years ago because of how good he was at defending Embiid they wanted to bring him on They're like hey we can't beat the Embiid stopper we're gonna have to have him join us well Philly was reminded of that in a big way because the amount of strips he had on Embiid how patient he was in being able to not bite on any of Embiid's up fakes obviously Embiid's still going to be able to get to the free throw line better than nearly anybody else in the NBA but uh, Embiid Al made his presence felt uh, and credit to Coach Joe Missoula as well, um, turning 
you know, back to our OG starting lineup of last year, our crazy uh, defensive analytics lineup from last year with our double bigs, Rob Williams and Al Horford. That was a really positive switch for us that he turned to a lot more in the last couple of games of the series because, again, we could have Al in an isolation situation guarding Joel Embiid while Robert Williams is like the fifth guy, the floater, the rim protector. He can just guard the weakest link on the other team in a man-to-man setting. So it was typically PJ Tucker and he could just cat and mouse it on the baseline in the corner uh, and be able to close out and be help defense for Embiid. And you could visibly see that the handful of times that Embiid was able to get around Al when he turned and saw Robert Williams, you just saw it in his face. Um, you know, even not even the shots that he contested, but the amount of shots that Embiid didn't take that he would have if there was anybody else in the court there instead of Rob Williams. Um, that was a really notable adjustment, and I thought uh, Rob finally made his impact felt after RJ called him out on the last podcast, so that was great as well. Uh, and also the ability to attack Embiid more. I touched on this a little bit, but especially in Game 7, it just felt like we were taking turns uh, with Tatum and sometimes Jalen Brown trying to get uh, get drag Joel Embiid away from the basket and attack him off the dribble. Uh, it's obviously really difficult for somebody that's, you know, seven feet, probably 300 pounds to hold up foot speed wise with guys like Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown. Uh, so making him work a little bit more on defense seemed to do wonders for us to close up the series. Uh, so I'm happy. I'm happy as a Celtics fan. I feel great about it. feel great about the victory. Uh, feel great that there's an eight seed waiting for us. Uh, but at the same time, this is again, no ordinary eight seed. Uh, let's talk about a little bit more about the history between the Heat and the Celtics. It's obviously a pretty vast history. Um, you know, this is what now the third time in what was that? Is that the third time in three years? The third time in four years that the Heat and the Celtics are in the conference finals? I just kind of thought about that. That's that shit's nuts. Because it was Celtics Heat in the bubble, uh, twenty one. It was obviously what the Bucks and somebody else in the conference finals. And then last year was Celtics Heat, and yet again. Celtics Heat in the conference finals. So uh, it really sucks that Coach Spo is extremely familiar with us. And again, I, I hate how much I've had to talk about coaching on this podcast because it's a really difficult conversation to have. Uh, but man, it is really scary to have a rookie head coach that's younger than our starting center uh, go up against Coach Eric Spolstra, who is by all accounts the best coach in the NBA. I think he is. Many other people think he is. Uh, and, you know, the proof is in uh, how he elevates his team year over year, a team that's devoid of talent, especially on the offensive end. He consistently finds ways to will him to will his team to the conference finals. Uh, and they are the best defensive team in the league. They are the smartest and, and most well-coached team in the league. And it's really scary uh, having Coach Spo go up against a rookie head coach in Joe Missoula. Uh, mentally, I am not prepared to play against Kyle Lowry. I'm going to end up yelling at my TV screen more than anyone. He's going to do some real dirty shit. I'm sh hope maybe Marcus will be able to get him back some way somehow. But, of course, Kyle Lowry is already having his resurgence um, you know, throughout his games against the Knicks and even before that against the Bucks, he had some really solid games. So he's somehow the Heat's like third best player, and that's going to drive me absolutely nuts uh, watching him as a Celtics fan. Uh, so yeah, it's going to be stressful. I think it's going to be tough. Jimmy Butler is still a dog. He obviously didn't have um, as much commercial success as he did against the Bucks. Uh, you know, they didn't need him as much against the Heat, I should, or against the Knicks, I should say, in round two. But he's still fantastic and, and somebody I still hold in very high regard. And, you know, it's a very likely possibility that despite how well Tatum played to close out the Sixers, that Jimmy Butler might just end up being the best player in the series. And the Celtics are going to have to find a way to win regardless. So, you know, looking at the teams on paper, it's it's not even close. It's it's literally the best team in the playoffs talent-wise versus maybe the you know the third or fourth worst team before the playoffs started talent-wise. Uh, and here they are still standing. 
you know, looking at that, my brain says Celtics in five just because they are so much more talented. But I just I, I can't picture a world in which the Heat go out that sad unless they face another injury. Like, I just feel like Jimmy Butler is going to find a way to will them to at least one win. And then Coach Spo will have just a kick-ass game plan and another that gets them to six. So I'm on paper, my final take is going to be Celtics in six. I, it doesn't scare me playing in Miami. I think that they can win game six on the road. You know, we haven't been, you know, we've been just as good of a road. I think we might even be better on the road during the playoffs if we do at home. As we've been at home, it's it's at least pretty close. So, yeah, that's my pick. Celtics in six. And, uh, yeah, man, I'm hoping for the best. That's all I got to say. I'm really scared about it. What, what else do you want from me, man? Before we get out of here, we have to talk about the other conference finals matchup on the West Nuggets versus Lakers man and again I'm filming this about an hour after game one wrapped up and what a game game one was uh, the Nuggets were able to come out on top they won in a final score of 132 to 126 both teams shot the living hell out of the basketball and it was an incredible game now swear to god that before the series I picked the Nuggets to win in five games and I feel okay about that, but I don't feel great. And let's talk about why. Now, again, game one was unbelievable. Uh, when I say both teams shot the hell out of the ball, they really did. Uh, the Lakers shot 46% from three, uh, and the Nuggets shot 47% from three. So at first I was like, man, I don't think the Nuggets role players can keep this up and have another game like this. But at the same time, I don't think the Lakers can either. Like, neither team, you know, missed from three point blank period the positives for denver were, were pretty obvious right denver came out and punched the lakers in the mouth and basically played a perfect 12 minutes of basketball to start the game maybe even more than that they were basically perfect the entire second half uh Jokic came out on a bender he basically had a near triple double before the end of the first quarter uh, and he was absolutely unbelievable and i'm simply running out of words to tell you how good Jokic is like i'm tired of it let's just let's just read the stats he had 34 points, 21 rebounds, 14 assists on 70% shooting from the field, and he also went three for three from three-point range. That's all I got, man. If you don't, if there's any non-Jokic believers out there now, I don't like. Where are you? Where are you? Let's let's find you. Let's sit you down and let's talk about it because this guy is unbelievable. He's been unbelievable, and now he's just doing it on the biggest stage. So it, it does make it that much more official, and he's making a very real run. At Giannis for the best player in the world, if he keeps up at this pace, it's basically going to be impossible to, to not say he's the best player in the world. Uh, but, man, that was really impressive. Um, they came out, again, basically perfect. I thought Jamal Murray played great. I think Michael Porter Jr. looked good. Bruce Brown was an absolute revelation for them off the bench, as he has been for most of the season. He was a fantastic offseason pickup for them as somebody who is one of the best cutters in the NBA, but he's basically running the backup point guard spot for the Nuggets, and he's been really good at it all year. He had a fantastic game and was getting some love on the broadcast as well. Uh, but let's look at the Lakers side of things, too. On the other side of things, the Lakers made a really big comeback in the second half. I think at points they were down by 20, and the Lakers cut the cut the deficit all the way down to, like, maybe it was, I think it was three points, maybe it was even one point um, for, you know, when there was only a couple minutes left in the game. And in large part, that was because Anthony Davis had one of his monster games on both ends of the floor. He had 40 points, 10 rebounds, three assists, three steals, and two blocks. So, yeah, man, Anthony Davis was fantastic, too. So it's pretty incredible that uh, it was just an absolute clash of the Titans in Jokic versus uh, Davis in this one. But what I'm a little bit nervous about from the Nuggets side of things and what I think Darvin Ham did a really great job at figuring out was how he decided to guard Jokic. Because, again, Jokic started on a tear, but he definitely did struggle a little bit down the stretch. 
And in large part is because they switched from having Davis guard Jokic straight up where Jokic was just somehow cooking him and hitting everything on him. Um, they switched to having, you know, Rui, Rui Hachimura come into the game and be the primary defender on Jokic. And just, you know, kind of like what we were talking about with the Celtics and having uh, Horford guard Embiid and Robert Williams be the help man. They had Rui guarding Jokic and Anthony Davis being the help man. So, again, you're allowing Anthony Davis to just thrive at what he's best at, and that's protecting the rim and making his presence felt when anybody gets to the basket. And that led to a really big run for the Lakers where they were able to cut the deficit down again, all the way down to a one possession game. Um, and it, what also worries me a little bit, if I'm a Nuggets fan or, or I, I, someone like myself who picked the Nuggets to win this series, is that Denver was able to survive so far in the playoffs pretty easily. Um, but they were able to survive the non-Jokic minutes by playing Aaron Gordon at the backup five. They basically staggered their minutes and they stuck with their go-to eight-man rotation, which has been fantastic. They run their traditional starting five and then run uh, Bruce Brown, Jeff Green, and Christian Brown off the bench. Um, and that's worked really well for them, but in part, it, the main reason that it's worked well is because they haven't played against somebody aggressive enough to punish their lack of size when Aaron Gordon is playing the five. Now, that sounds a little bit ridiculous because, again, that they were just playing against the Suns and DeAndre Ayton, uh, but Ayton isn't exactly uh, aggressive on offense, and neither was Carl Towns in the first series. They weren't aggressive enough to uh, exploit that matchup where the Lakers are smart. The Lakers, again, made a really big run when Jokic was at the game. Uh, LeBron was going to the post a lot more during that time. Davis was really dominant during the non-Jokic minutes in this one. So it'll be interesting to see if the Nuggets have to make an adjustment and if they reach deeper into their bench. Again, they have a buyout guy and Thomas Bryant just sitting there. Um, obviously someone who's familiar with the Lakers, given he played on the Lakers earlier in the season. So I think at some point we might see him. Maybe that sounds crazy. Um, we'll definitely see him if there's an injury at some point. But I just want to know if... if you know, Denver can survive the non-Jokic minutes um, as easily as they did in the previous two rounds. I just don't think they'll be able to get away with that as much against the Lakers. And I feel like despite the Nuggets playing a damn near perfect half to start, I feel like the Lakers were able to figure it out a little bit and definitely close the game stronger. But in general, uh, this is going to be a really, really fun series. It's going to be a complete chess match once LeBron really gets going and you have um, two of the best basketball minds going up against each other in Jokic versus LeBron. Obviously, tonight I wasn't overly impressed with Bron. I felt like he took some bad shots down the stretch. He went for a couple hero ball threes that just do not seem to be falling for him at this point. Um, they haven't fallen for him all playoffs, essentially, at least the, the clutch ones at the end of games. Uh, had a crucial turnover late as well where Jamal Murray poked it away and Jokic was able to come up with a steal uh, when the Nuggets were you know, basically up five and had to get one more stop to close out the game. So not the best LeBron game, but still, uh, I should mention, I'd be remiss to mention uh, game six of, you know, Lakers Warriors where LeBron uh, kind of took over and was just the best player on the court. And he finally got to that extra level, that extra gear that uh, I was kind of saying that we hadn't seen from him yet, despite the success of the Lakers. We, we hadn't seen LeBron to go to that extra level yet uh, throughout this postseason. And he was able to do that. So, uh, you know, he has that in the tank. He's still going to keep picking his spots. We'll see if he uh, really exerts himself in game two or he'll wait to get back in L.A. to really go crazy and, um, you know, make sure that they take advantage of those home court games. But it's going to be a fun series. It's going to be a chess match on both sides. I do think Denver's going to win this series in five games. And then uh, we'll be in for a really great uh, conference finals matchups either way. So, I think with that, that covers everything, man. I'm I'm absolutely exhausted uh, from all this playoff basketball. Uh, wild weekend out with friends as well and going to have an exciting weekend coming up. But I will still be locked into all these games. I'm looking forward to 
Uh, getting back to you guys next week with hopefully a positive update on the first couple games of the Celtics series. We will see. I should be back at you either next Tuesday or Wednesday, something like that. But uh, before I get out of here, guys, got to remind you guys to follow the podcast at Words with Wallace on everything that includes uh, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube. Uh, Spotify, Apple Music, wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to download my podcast. That goes a long way, even if you're not listening to it, man. You know, if you want to listen to the first couple seconds, you know, maybe tune in for the dance moves at the beginning of the YouTube video if you're into that, and then you just want to download it and then show it some love so I see it, I see the click. That'd be huge. Feel free to rate and review as well, and I will talk to you guys next week. Peace.